This is Vis-a-Vis, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Vis-a-Vis features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities, Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, and École Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, vis-a-vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. On September 16th, a young Iranian woman of Kurdish origin, Masa Amini, died after being arrested by Iran's guidance patrol, the Morality Police, for wearing her hijab too loosely. According to eyewitnesses, Amini's death was the result of police brutality. It triggered a wave of protests that have been gaining in intensity and spreading throughout the country over the last four weeks. A unique feature of these protests is that they have been led and inspired by women. How does this new uprising relate to previous protests in Iran over the last decades? Are they likely to shake the foundations of the mullah's regime in Iran? What are the possible outcomes of these demonstrations? In order to analyze the significance of this uprising in the historical and social context of Iran, Vis-a-Vis invited Dr. Kian Tachbach, fellow of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Dr. Tachbach is an international expert in the areas of local government reform, urban planning, civil society capacity building, and international public policy research collaboration. Dr. Tajbach was a representative of the Open Society Foundations in Iran in the early 2000s and was one of the Iranian-American dual citizens arrested and detained for years in Iran after being falsely accused of engaging in activities against Iranian national security. Dr. Tajbach is the author of The Promise of the City, Space, Identity, and Politics in Contemporary Social Thought, published by University of California Press in 2001. And his latest book, Creating Local Democracy in Iran, State Building and the Politics of Decentralization, was published by Cambridge University Press in July 2022. And his latest article in public seminar entitled Iran's First Feminist Uprising was translated in five languages. Dr. Toshbach, Welcome to Vis-a-Vis. Well, Emmanuel, thank you very much for inviting me to share my thoughts about uh, the current events in Iran. Young women and men who are demonstrating in the streets of Tehran and 80 other cities in Iran represent a new generation of protesters. Uh, They've only known the current regime. Their slogan, woman, life, freedom, seems to be as much an act of defiance against the government, as it is also an act of hope. But Iran has been through many waves of protests and demonstrations in the last decades. We've seen uh, demonstrations in 2009, 2017, and uh, more recently 2019. All have been crushed. Is this wave of demonstrations different? I would say yes. There is something very unprecedented and uh, new about these current protests. This is uh, really the first time we've had a society-wide and very broadly supported um, uprising against 
a particular type of traditionalist and puritanical um, norms that are imposed by the Iranian government uh, as part of the Islamic government's um, uh, fundamental laws. And so this kind of demand, we haven't really seen at this level of depth and breadth before. Even though it is the case that women have been resisting and struggling for their rights in a, let us say, tacit, um, informal way for four decades of the re un under the Islamic Republic, the fact remains that uh, the current uh, uh, tragic death of Massa Amini has triggered a, um, a really unprecedented level of um, protest against uh, what I called in my recent essay, the patriarchal control of women's bodies, but also the, what I also called the paternalistic control of public space, the streets, the schools, the, um, the parties that uh, young people want to go to, the cafes, the um, restaurants, uh, all these are um, strictly controlled um, by the Iranian regime um, uh, so that they can conform with the government's um, uh, interpretation of what is proper Islamic um, uh, morality and public behavior. And so this is really, um, so there is something new about it. And, and this alienation, do you feel that it is also emphasized by relationship with the outside world, um, and particularly through um, social media, but also through um, travel, um, that that Iranians have been going back and forth um, in, uh, in 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 Europe, in the United States, connections with families who are exiled. Um, I heard some commentators, for example, who claim that Western influence, you know, the the fact of um, that. Um, you know, the population in a country like Iran is being exposed through social media, the movies, et cetera, to Western values, that that has played an important role in forging the imagination of this new generation of young people who have known only uh, the regime of the of, of the mullahs. And, and do, do you think that, that that is the case? Or um, is there also um, internal conversations that are happening among uh, these uh, young people that are not necessarily indebted to the values uh, uh, of the so-called values of the West that they might see on their television or, or, or telephone screens, but that they are in internal discussions about um, uh, the values that they want um, to uh, espouse and develop and, and perhaps also their own version of feminism that they might be developing. Yes, I mean, I think that, well, we have to be careful here. I mean, first of all, the, the current uh, regime in Iran has accused the current protests of being somehow either overly influenced or even instigated by Western powers. Um, but what they really mean, uh, and this is a longstanding belief of the regime, is that, um, that, uh, that the Western uh, culture has influenced um, uh, the populations in Iran, uh, different groups of the population, in ways which they feel are contradictory to their understanding of Islamic norms. We have to be careful in not um, 
you know, endorsing or let us say repeating the uh, the accusations, which uh, which don't seem to be uh, borne out. Um, it is Western influence, but only in the broadest sense of the term West. I mean, what we really are uh, talking about is a young uh, generation that is influenced by a global culture of modernity. It's not that it's coming from the United States or Europe. And here, I think I, you know, I want to make a point, uh, you know, following up on your first question about the kinds of demands that are being made. It did begin with an anti-hijab, an anti-mandatory veiling protest. Um, so, in one sense, it is a, um, it is a generational clash between a young um, generation that feels alienated from the ideals of the revolution and from their grandparents. Really, I mean, you know, from the older generations that are still in charge. Um, as the demands expanded and has expanded over the last month of protests, um, it also includes uh, anti-authoritarian demands, that is to say demands for more accountable government and for more personal and political freedoms. Um, there are also um, more muted, but there are also economic demands, uh, and, and, and which echo some of the earlier protests. But I think that fundamentally, we're seeing a kind of Iranian version of a culture clash. Um, in other words, a, a, a contradiction between profoundly different um, beliefs about the nature of the good life, about the nature of a good society, and the kind of relative balance between individual and collective um, duties and rights. Um, in terms of the younger people and the other kinds of influence, I should make one point. I should emphasize how utterly an outlier Iran is when it comes to the question of a number of issues, social issues. One of them is this mandatory hijab. Iran is the only country apart from Afghanistan on earth that imposes mandatory veiling uh, for all women in all public places. And so it's not only a question of, of influence from the West. Many young people would look around the world and they would see every other Islamic country other than Afghanistan does not impose the mandatory veil. And so it's hard to then say that this is a really a Western influence. This is a culture of modernity that many Islamic countries around the world have adopted, um, a, a new appreciation of individual autonomy, a, a rebalancing between individual autonomy and, and, and you know, communal norms. And so this is something that the young people are tapping into. It's not just Western. I want to come back to this um, point that you were making about the internal divisions within um, uh, within Iranian society. And in one of your articles, you establish uh, a very interesting distinction between three groups um, that are promoting distinct visions of the future of Iran. So first, um, there are the Velai, the Islamists that rule the country and their supporters. Second, you have Islamic democratic reformists who have been marginalized since 2009 and are also marginalized, I understand, in electoral processes. And then third, the modern, the secular modernists, as we may call them, who enjoy tacit support within the country. I'm curious about your sense of which of these groups is likely to prevail today. Um, and if, if there is indeed a, a feminist social movement um, that is 
you know, managing at actually to s- stir things up and to shake the foundations of the Islamic re- uh, Republic's regime. What are the groups that you believe are likely to lead um, any any kind of, of of fight to basically, um, uh, you know, shake down the regime and 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 create a new future for Iran? Yeah, I mean, this question is interesting, and it speaks to an important point that I'd like to emphasize too, is that there is a tendency in the reporting on the protests in Iran um, to um, set up a kind of simplistic binary that what we're seeing is a kind of monolithic society combating, a, you know, a uh, an oppressive regime. Um, Now, Iranians don't speak with a single voice. Iranian society is not monolithic. There are a significant minority of Iranians who support the current regime and who support mandatory veiling and hijab. We make an estimate of somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population. If we if we pitch it at, let's say, 15 percent of the population, um, it's a, Iran is a very large country, more than 80 million people population. So we're talking about, you know, eight or nine million people who the Velais, which means supporters of the Velayat-e-Fari principle of Islamic rule, where the Velayat-e-Fari is the Persian uh, uh, term for the supreme leader. So uh, the idea of you have a, a, essentially a, an Islamic um, you know, form of dictatorship where the the main power centers are not accountable in an electoral sense is the Velayat-e-Fari principle. Uh, So I think that it's important not to uh, misinterpret the protests as representing a single voice of the Iranian population. So with that in mind, I make these three uh, distinctions. I mean, leaving aside a group of um, communist uh, are, uh, who, um, groups, opposition groups outside of Iran who are committed to the violent and armed overthrow of the regime. I'm leaving they, them aside um, because they don't have much support within in, in Iran. I identify three types of agenda, projects, utopian goals, the sort of visions of what Iran should be in the future. And um, and as you uh, summarized, uh, one is the fundamentalist Islamist view of a kind of, um, you know, an Islamic state, an Islamist state. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's the current system we have now. The two other visions are the moderate uh, reformists, and they are Islamic reformists who are uh, associated with the presidency of Muhammad Khatami in the 19, late 1990s. Um, this group um, is fascinating because they evolved over a 20-year period from being very fundamentalist Islamists to becoming what I call Muslim Democrats. They evolved over time to accept uh, a, a, a kind of pluralist democracy. That is to say, they have come to accept that they are only one group among many groups, and even non-Islamic groups. And in this, and in this respect, they they um, echo the the um, quite staggering evolution of the Anhada party in Tunisia, which after 2016 uh, did the same thing. They kind of like they went beyond the idea of Islamic. 
a state and have accepted to become one amongst many political parties and to accept electoral loss and to accept um, you know, free and fair uh, elections as the best criteria for assessing the collective will, you know, the general will. So this is, a, this, is a, this is a move towards democracy. I mean, that's the good news. The bad news is since 2009 and after the crushing of the um, Green Movement protests, um, this group has been completely marginalized. Their leaders are either in prison, in exile, or have they been completely silenced and banished from public life? Um, and they don't have uh, their parties are illegal. They don't have newspapers. They don't have access to media. So that's really a tragic situation about them because they do represent a, a uh, an influential group that probably um, possesses quite a significant uh, support within the society. The third group are uh, the secular republicans and uh, to the extent they, that there are secular republicans who live inside Iran, they live a kind of shadow existence, a kind of don't ask, don't tell. And the reason is because all secular parties are banned in Iran. There are no secular media, there are no newspapers, there's no uh, ability to make a, have, uh, you know, to assemble or mobilize or to uh, contest elections. And so they have really no legal existence within Iran. Most of the secular Republican um, platforms that we hear about are from uh, diasporic and uh, groups of Iranians outside of Iran. They're very influential through TV and so forth, but those outside sources of media and ideas have limited influence on uh, events inside Iran. So those are the three, those are the three groups. You ask a very nice question about what, how could a new social foundation be found for uh, Iran? And my, uh, my view is that it's very, it's probably impossible for any one of these three visions to prevail by means of suppressing the other two. The current Velai vision has prevailed but only in an oppressive authoritarian way. It has to basically completely marginalize and repress the other alternatives. Coexistence, I think, amongst these three, I see as the path forward for forming a new social foundation for Iran. Along that path towards a fourth vision, it is the case that I think, um, I mean, I think the secular Republicans are probably open to it. Uh, um, and that could come under the guise of a constitutional monarch or, a, uh, or an anti-monarchist republicanism. Those are the two flavors of the secular Republicans. Um, I think the Muslim Democrats are, would be open to a more uh, uh, encompassing and inclusive vision. The current rulers in Iran are the ones who will suffer the most. In other words, will have to step back the most. So in terms of the future, um, I think that um, again, to circle back to the idea of the protests, I think that we should realize that the protests represent a significant part of the population of Iran, but not all of it. And that going forward, um, I think that um, a, a fourth vision that allows a, a kind of practical compromise between these three groups uh, is, as I can see it, is certainly maybe not the only way to go, but it's the way I see it going forward. That's fascinating. Um, I'd like to end with with 
one question that goes back to your expertise, um, which is really on local governments and civil society in Iran. Um, many commentators have remarked that, yes, this is a very diverse movement. It is led and inspired by women, but you have young people, you have older people, rich and, 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 and not so rich Iranians who are joining uh, these demonstrations around the country, which in a way is, is also unprecedented. Um, that being said, many recognize that for um, a rebellion to become a revolution, uh, you need other sectors of society um, to actually join the fray and be involved. Recently, we've seen that um, a number of workers have threatened to strike. Um, maybe that's the, be the beginning of a wider movement. But I'm wondering, what is your assessment of the state of civil society in Iran today? Um, and by that, I mean uh, the intellectual forces in university, um, in universities, uh, uh, forces at the level of local government, uh, of civil society, again, you know, um, NGOs, trade unions. Have they all been so completely clamped down uh, that there is really no strength there to provide to the the movement that is actually taking place in the streets uh, in Iran? Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, this speaks to an interesting debate within uh, within um, observers of author of authoritarian states, uh, which is the question of um, under the rubric of authoritarian resilience. And you know, how is it that authoritarian states manage to keep going and manage to grow and uh, manage to maintain power? I think that one of the things that um, we've come to realize, um, perhaps too late, is that you know there was always this belief in the West, and uh, many of us who were trained in the West and socialized in the West, and you know came to study the types of political science that uh, we learn in liberal elite uh, institutions. The assumption seemed to be that democracies are the only stable form of government. Uh, that that seemed to be our default, and so the question always was, why are authoritarian systems not collapsing? I think that the last 20, 30 years has uh, given us a more realistic sense that, in fact, it's democracies which are um, the outlier. It's the unusual innovation in human history, and most states throughout human history have been authoritarian, and authoritarian states, we should not assume that authoritarian states are unstable and that we need to explain the, the stability. Now, in the late 1990s, um, the reformists had the idea to employ the expansion of the electoral uh, system in Iran um, as a way of promoting their agenda of democratization. In other words, up until 1999, the only elections that occurred in Iran were for the national parliament and for a few other somewhat not relevant or important uh, bodies. I mean, they're important, but they're not um, influenced deeply by elections. All of a sudden overnight in 1999, um, what I call a big bang reform happened. and. Over a thousand, in over a thousand cities and over 35,000 villages all around this massive country, you know, it's a country bigger than France and Spain and Italy combined in geographic scope. 
um, uh, all of a sudden you had electoral, uh, you had elections for local city councils, um, which had never really existed before. The reformers who were in power at the time thought or believed or hoped that this massive expansion of the electoral infrastructure would allow greater pluralism to take place. It would allow greater participation. It would allow greater civil society activity. And it would allow greater variety of um, interests and grievances to be expressed through the local electoral mechanisms. That was their hope. The bottom line of my book is after 20 years, their project has failed. And instead, the regime has been extremely successful in incorporating these new institutions into the body, into the um, governmental and administrative infrastructure of the regime itself. And so, in a sense, it has neutralized the, the reformists' um, attempt to use these new electoral institutions to challenge the theocratic regime. And instead, the regime has succeeded in using these institutions to consolidate their power and their regime. So I think that is an important um, uh, indication of the ability of authoritarian states to um, basically control and contain challenges to their rule, and they do it through institutions. So people do go and vote, they do interact with their local institutions, but they do it strictly within the parameters that are allowed by the Islamic regime, which are not liberal and are not fully democratic. So I think that in terms of civil society, uh, the regime has done that with many civil society organizations. They are generally neutralized. They're very weak. In terms of the expansion uh, of the uh, protests, well, you know, I think we're very far from a revolutionary situation. A revolutionary situation would require three major expansions from the current protests. It would need to expand to many more social groups and generational groups in the urban middle class, the same groups that were out in 2009 during the Green Movement. We haven't seen this uh, yet. Uh, the next expansion would have to go towards the industrial sectors of the economy. As you, as you noted, in the last few days, there have been some, some um, minor uh, incidents of strikes and threats and so forth. Until that goes, uh, occurs on a mass level um, that would threaten the economy, um, you know, uh, that would be the failure of the second expansion. And the third expansion would be um, officials in the military and security services. And we've seen no sign of that yet. So, um, you know, I think that the protest will leave a deep legacy, a positive legacy of, um, of competing visions of the future of Iran. And, and it'll be the challenge that uh, this government will have to face for years to come. Dr. Tajbach, um, thank you so much for these uh, enlightening comments and, and this uh, very thought-provoking conversation. Um, I'll remind our listeners that um, uh, Dr. Tajbach's uh, latest book, uh, Creating Local Democracy in Iran, State Building and the Politics of Decentralization, uh, is published by Cambridge University Press, uh, and uh, it was out uh, last summer. Uh, before we close, I'd like to pay homage to Dr. Fariba Adelkhach, professor at Sciences Po in Paris. Dr. Adelkhach has been uh, arrested by the Iranian authorities in June 
2019, um, and condemned uh, uh, a year later to five years in prison for alleged collusion to undermine uh, national security, uh, much like um, you have Dr. Dr. Tashbach. For a thousand days, uh, faced with arbitrary imprisonment uh, and with uh, health-threatening living conditions, uh, she has uh, stood her ground with admirable moral strength and dignity. Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdabasid Ali, and I'm Emmanuel Kitan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Program and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.